Glad to see everyone here today. Keep those great conversations going after church today. So a little different look today. Like was mentioned, Mike and Sarah are not here. And we're happy that they're in, in South Carolina and they're, they're uh, with the church and a church family there that's uh, been really supportive of, of them and the vine. So we're excited to hear about uh, their trip and everything that goes on there. This morning, we'll look at two statements. And these statements are about a king. In Acts 13, 22, God testifies that his appointed king is a man after his own heart. Then in 2 Samuel 12, 9, God's prophet speaks to the king of Israel asking, why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Both these statements are about King David. So how could this be? I think much like our journey, David's wasn't linear, wasn't a perfect path. And we're going to look at Psalm 51 today. And we're going to really get a, a nice insight into David's inner thoughts, into a, a really deep prayer that he has in a conversation where you can see restoration. In verse 17, it says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise. Now, this might seem like a shocking statement. If we, we know quite a bit about David and his life, where one of the most amazing characters in the Bible could be at such a low point. And I think Psalms 51 is going to show us that David's biggest mistake shows us how he was actually a man after God's own heart. So I want to answer two questions. One, how did David get there? where his only sacrifice was his broken spirit and a contrite heart. And what steps did David take to find restoration with God? In his prayer, there was five things that really stood out to me as I reflected on this. And I want to share those with you. So how did David get here? I had a roommate in college, and his parents were missionaries from Korea to the United States. And when he came to the United States, his parents wanted to make it easier on everyone, so they asked him to uh, pick an American name, since we're not great at pronouncing names from other countries. So he did, and I, I knew his name already, but I was amazed that his name wasn't like Cool Dude or Maximus, because as a seven-year-old boy, I know that probably would have been my American name. But his name was David. And I, I asked him, why David? And he, he said, well, David was, uh, I read a lot of Bible when I was little, and, and David was a pretty amazing character. And, and I totally get that. Who wouldn't want to be like David? He wrestled with lions and bears. He defeated Goliath, a giant. He slayed a giant. And he had a best friend that would roll into war with him, and no matter what the odds were, he's a pretty amazing character. And even going into this point before we, we see him in Psalms 51, the headings look more like Marvel movies than maybe something we'd expect to see in the Bible where David conquers Jerusalem, David defeats the Philistines, and the ark is back, brought back to Jerusalem. It's pretty exciting. Things are going great for David. And right in the middle, we get this uncomfortable story. So David, David's on the roof 
I guess that's what kings did back then. They're on the roof. And he's, he sees Bathsheba, a woman. She's taking a bath, and, and he thinks that she's beautiful. So he uses his power, and he, he sleeps with Bathsheba, and she is pregnant. Now, this isn't a good look for the king, so he has to cover things up in his mind. So he sends for his hus- her husband, who's off at war, and he brings him back, and he says, go spend time, be at home. But Uriah is a good and faithful leader, and, and he has such loyalty to his soldiers that are out in the battlefield that he refuses to go home and sleep at home, and he sleeps outside. And, and despite David's attempts to get him back home, Uriah does not go home, does not sleep inside. So David's plans are foiled. So the only logical thing in David's mind at this point is that he has to kill Uriah. So he sends Uriah back to battle, and he sends them to the front lines, which was highly unusual for a leader of an army to be up front. And Uriah dies. He's struck down by the arrows of the enemies. So David thinks that finally he's swept the whole thing under the rug until God sends a prophet to him, Nathan. And Nathan tells David a story. There was a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had many sheep, more than he needed. And there was a poor man, and he had one sheep. And not only did he have one sheep, but he loved that sheep like it was his daughter. That's what it says. And surely this would have drawn the sympathy of David because he was a shepherd. One day, a traveler comes into town to meet with the rich man, and the rich man is going to throw a feast. And instead of using his, one of his many sheep, he uses the poor man's one sheep. David's outraged. Nathan asks him, what do you think should happen to this man? He bubbles over with anger and he says, surely this man must die. Nathan says, you are that man. That is what the Lord says. You can kind of imagine, like if it was in a movie, the bass would drop and everything would slow down, and he's staggering at his, at his realization. It shakes him to the core. And that's where we get Psalms 51. We get that from the reflection of David and his realization at what he had done. David's empty and he repents. He pursues God. He looks to God. I think repent is kind of a loaded word in our culture, especially outside of Christianity looking in. It has this, this connotation to it. But on its most basic form, it means to turn away or to change one's mind. So to repent from our sins would mean to turn away from our sins. And the beauty in that is when we're turning away from our sins, we're turning towards God. I think that's exactly what David's doing here. In Psalms 51, it's his prayer. There's, there's five points that I, that I saw here that, that were his path to repentance and restoration. Now, from the outside looking in, even telling the story, I, I, we, we know what's going to happen, but it almost seems obvious that David was in the wrong. How could he not know that? But I, I believe that was the author's intent. That was God's intent for our hearts to be changed because we'll see how wrong David was only to realize that a lot of times we're the person in the wrong. Maybe we're that man. Maybe we're that woman too. Have you, have you ever been there where you realize that you messed up? I know I have. 
And I, I remember the first time, it's probably not the first time, but really the first time that I, I, I really reflected on it. And I realized that left to my own devices, I was kind of a jerk to my own devices. I, I do not like this story, so I'm going to tell it to a room full of people today. It was, it was sixth grade, and it was a middle school dance. It might have looked a little something like this if you've ever been to a middle school dance or if you were a chaperone. Boys, girls, a few strange characters in the middle dancing. So I was uh, with a group of a few friends, friends, and uh, they, they came up with this plan. And there was a catch, but I was, uh, essentially I was going to ask a girl to dance. And if I asked this girl to dance, then I would get a piece of pizza. So I built up the courage and... They did not have good intentions. They, they told me what I should say. So I went up to the girl. I said, would you like to dance? And she said, yes. And I said, too bad, because I don't. And that was horrible. Like, looking back right now, I still cringe thinking about it. But I was so concerned about what my friends thought about me that I didn't think about the person on the other side. The point is, left to my own devices, I'm not a great person. I'm not a good person. I don't think I'm alone. Maybe you're remembering a cringeworthy story, or maybe, maybe you've been hurt recently. I'm, so, I'm sorry if you have. Psalms 51, 1 through 6. This is where David, in his prayer, recognizes what's happened. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my inequity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. So that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was a sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. First step on on his path towards repentance is recognition of what he did, and that he needed grace, and he needed God's mercy. He says, I'm nothing without you, Lord, but a sinner. Not only that, but David owns his sin. He doesn't feel entitled, like many of the kings would back then, uh, ruling over their subjects. They did what they needed to do. That's not how David felt. He didn't even blame Bathsheba for, for taking a bath on the roof. He owned his sin completely. And he recognized that it was holding him back from God. The problem with sin is that it separates us from joy. Sin causes us to turn away from God and put something in his place. The Bible tells us we can't follow two masters. We can't follow two things. There's a movie. I'm sure lots of you have seen it already. It's Castaway. Sorry, there are going to be spoilers, but it's 20 years old. Um, and in, in Castaway, Tom Hanks plays the main character, and he's a FedEx worker. There's a plane crash. He's stranded on an island all by himself with just a few boxes and, and I guess, uh, whatever the island had. So the, during, during the movie, he has a friend. Yeah, I already heard some people talking about Wilson. He finds this volleyball in one of the packages, and his bloody handprint goes on it, kind of looks like a face, and Wilson becomes his comfort 
throughout the story. It's the only thing he has to talk to, and it begins to represent more for him. Um, someone to talk to, comfort. And the climax of the movie, I think, is, is when he finally works up the resources and, and works up the courage to break through the surf and get off the island. And at that moment, Wilson falls off his lifeboat and begins to float away, and that's where we're going to pick up here. Sometimes that's how life feels. I don't know why, as I was preparing for this, that, that came to my mind, but I think it's a, it's a powerful metaphor. You know, there's, noth- there's nothing wrong with Wilson on his own, but it caused him to turn away from his lifeboat. He was in the open ocean, and he began to drift away. And that's what sin does in our lives. As we look towards something else, as we put something else where God should be, this ocean can separate us. But luckily, we have that rope. We have Jesus. We have God, a grace, graceful, gracious God that wants us to be near to him. But the sin keeps us from us, and, and we're either pursuing him or we're pursuing something else. It causes us to lie to people because we're, we're more concerned about what they think versus what God thinks. There's a saying that's really popular that money is the root of all evil, but that's, that's not what the Bible says. It says that the love of money causes all types of evil because when we put money in God's place, then we begin to drift away from his good plan. But we can call for restoration. We can call for goodness. In verse 7 through 12, it says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my inequity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David starts to see this restoration that God holds, this joy. And he realizes that God is the one that has the power. And it's not to say that there won't be consequences from our choices, from our sins. We live in a real world. There's real collateral. But we can call out to him. And we can call for that restoration to that goodness, to his spirit. The greatest command, when Jesus is asked, is to love God and to love others. He says it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it must be something really important for us to remember, to love God and love others. I don't want to embarrass myself again, but I will. So, I, I, uh, my cousin was nice enough to invite me to be a groomsman in his wedding. And it was a fun day. It was outside, beautiful cabin, nature, all these great things going around. And I remember we got the pictures back. I got, I got to see some of the pictures. And I don't always feel I'm photogenic, but that, those pictures, I felt like I was pretty handsome. And I, I remember just looking at myself. I was like, all right, yeah, I did it. So I, I, needed, I needed a second opinion. Uh, of course, I'm going to go to my mom because she's 
she thinks I'm handsome too. But. So I, I go to my mom and I'm like, hey, wasn't I looking good in this picture, handsome? And she, to my shock, did, didn't respond that way. And I said, how dare you? No, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. I, I, uh, she said to me that, you know, that's not what it's really about. It's about your cousin's wedding. And I, it hit me. It wasn't quite like David, but it's, it did hit me pretty hard. And I've always remembered that conversation that, that she had with me. I was so focused in on myself that I didn't see what was going on in that picture. I didn't see God's beauty and his nature. I didn't see my cousin and his wife and their happiness. It's so easy to forget that God is first and other people too. And David brings this out in 13 through 15. He says, then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my savior, and my, my tongue will sing your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. David begins to refocus on the mission. Lord, let me bring glory to your name. Use me, Lord, to help others. Use me to help others that are struggling to point them towards you, God. And when we are following God and we're following others, we get to refocus on the mission, his mission. What Jesus said is the greatest command. And when you really start to look at David's life, it becomes more and more clear that it wasn't about him. God chose him because he was a man after his heart, after God's heart. He wrestled with lions and bears because of his childlike faith and his care for his flock. He defeated Goliath because of his complete reliance on God. And he was restored from brokenness because of God's grace. It was never about him, and it's never really about us. It's about what God's doing. But it's ingrained in our culture, and I, I get that it's easy to forget. You know, it starts, I know we haven't gone out and got, uh, done our trick-or-treating yet, but Christmas is around the corner, and we're going to be telling kids that you better watch out because he knows who's naughty and nice, and that's how you get your presents. There's a show called The Good Place, and in, in the show, there's a good place and a bad place. And in order to get to the good place, you have to earn points. If you earn the most points, then you're in the good place. And that, that part, I think, is, is quite wrong, but there, there's a character in there who's an ethics professor, and he, he dedicates his entire life to doing the ethical thing. And through that, even through his want and his will to do the right thing, he ends up hurting people. You know, it's a, I, th- I think it's a very rudimentary view, but I, I think that's what a lot of people think that's what Christianity is about, that, that it's about doing the right thing, especially from the outside in, looking in. Like, you do the right thing for God, you, you can earn your, your way in. Tim Keller wrote an article about sin, and in that article, he talks about a pastor that he knew that she was a lifelong pastor, and she began to get sick. And, and she couldn't understand why she was feeling so much despair and brokenness until she realized that she felt that God had owed her something because of the life that she lived. And I'm guilty of this too. I know it happens in my life where I think I can, I can do it on my own. But that's completely missing the point. 
The beauty of grace is that it's 100% not up to us. And that's a relief when we realize that. It sound, sounds weird, but when we start to feel that, that it's up to God and his grace. And it starts to feel, and we, st- we start to see his plan. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't try. That's not to say that we won't grow. But the reason that we try and the reason that we grow starts to align more with God. And in verse 16 and 17 here in Psalms 51, I think, I think this is where, where David really starts to get it. You don't delight in my sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in my burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Despite this amazing life he lived, he recognizes that it's God. And when we start there, things truly start to change. We begin to refuse ourselves and put, put, putting God first. So that's, that's the, the fourth point here. Refuse yourself. When we begin to refuse God, or refuse ourselves and put God in his right place, then we begin to see his plan more clearly. And David ends in 18 and 19 where he says, May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteousness and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David begins to see redemption. It starts with us as we give it all to God and refuse ourselves. Then he begins to redeem us. And it's a beautiful process. And as we're redeemed, we begin to participate in God's plan. We can redeem, work with God to redeem others, work on redeeming places and communities. And we don't have to rely on sacrifices. We have Jesus. The definition of redeem is to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment. Jesus is doing the redeeming for us. He was the final sacrifice, and he allows us to turn away from our sins. His blood was given in exchange for our opportunity to regain our place as God's children. At David's lowest moment, I think we see his greatest strength. And it was his ability to realize that God was working in his life. And in his prayer, he lays out a pattern for repentance. The recognition of his shortcomings and that he needs God. A plead for restoration to be brought back to God's goodness. A refocusing on his mission to serve God and serve others. A refusal of himself where his plans were not great, but it was God's. And finally, he began to be redeemed and he began to be able to participate in God's process of bringing goodness to the earth. Surely a flawed man after God's own heart can show us a path to repentance. And today, no matter if you're feeling guilt, 
You're feeling hurt. You're feeling a lack of clarity or, or maybe just curiosity. I know one thing for sure, that God wants to be near to you. He wants to bring that goodness. He wants to call you his child. Like David, we have an opportunity to turn away from the things that are holding us back and towards real life. Dear God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for despite our shortcomings. Thank you for the fact that despite our shortcomings, Lord, that, that you're willing to love us and that you give us a path to participate in your goodness for our lives, Lord, and participate in this good, in your goodness for others and our community, Lord. We just pray as we go out this week that, that you'll help us to focus on our mission, Lord, and, and help us to love others and to love you. Please bless everyone's week. In Jesus' name, amen.